Let's pray for the reading of God's word. Father, we ask now that you might open our ears, that we would truly hear your word. Father, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for the spirit of the season, the opportunities to celebrate, to gather, to rejoice in your incarnation, to hope for your return, to gather with friends and families, to renew acquaintances. We rejoice in all these things. But Father, chief among them, we ask that we would truly worship you, that you would open our eyes to your word, you would soften our hearts that it might take root, and you would open our ears that we might truly hear you. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. May God add his blessing to this, the reading of his word. This changes everything. That line has been used to introduce the the first iPhone, the 2015 F-150, a book on climate change, a movie on gender discrimination in Hollywood, a whole line of razors, another line of fitness equipment, a variety of apps, and on and on. And here we go again. Each time, those items undoubtedly change some things for some people, but everything? That seems a bit too much. And yet, as I've said, here we go again. This time, a preacher is using it to a congregation on the day after Christmas. But I'll submit to you, that the birth of Jesus over 2,000 years ago, in fact, did change everything. So incredible is the reality of Emmanuel, of God with us, of God becoming man, 
born of a virgin, so that he could save us to the uttermost, so that he might truly experience all of our struggles, so that he would be one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And he would still, the perfect one, the righteous one, still choose to allow himself to be crucified as he paid the penalty for our sin. This then, this God who became man, he then grants full forgiveness to all who would respond to his call. This is what the little baby Jesus came to accomplish. So astounding is that act that everyone should respond with a deep awe, a reverent worship, a relentless pursuit to find and to honor that king. Truly, if God became man, he would without a doubt be the king of kings. He would certainly be the Lord of lords. And we would expect that startling reality to bring about a response of that awe and that worship that we've already talked about. And yet, when we look at our text this morning, we see rather several contrasting responses to that same stated fact of Jesus' birth. We'll see that some are threatened by it. Some have anxiety. They're unsettled by the birth. We'll see another group with a rather indifferent response that seems to result out of a pride. And finally, we see a group intrigued by this birth a group that expends great energy to find and to worship this king. The king of kings has been born, and therefore we must worship him. And yet even today, people respond quite differently to this fact of Jesus' birth. We've responded to his birth in our own church's build-up to the celebration of Christ as a church. You, you can see how we've responded. There have been the readings of Old Testament prophecies. We've followed the progress of the Advent can, uh, candle and the Advent readings. We've moved the songs and the hymns uh, to focusing on Advent and then focusing on Christ's birth. There have been caroling, there have been feasting, parties, gift-giving, all because of the centrality of Jesus' birth and the real difference that it's making in the life of our church and in our own lives. It might almost be silly to say, but Jesus really does change everything for us. At least he should. And yet when one looks at the churches, whether it's here in the valley, across our land, or around the world, you'll see a different story. The sad reality is that one of the lowest attended Sundays in the year is this Sunday, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's. It's ironic when you think about it that many of us in celebrating his birth choose not to attend to him in worship, which is exactly the thing he's most interested in doing. But no more on this, because you're all here. And so in that sense, I would just be preaching to the choir. And yet, I think most choir directors would say, the choir needs preaching too, as well. And so as we take a look at these three responses to Jesus' birth, 
we might get a glimpse of ourselves in their response. We might find a couple ways in which God can speak to us and improve our worship of our Lord. Because Jesus is the King of Kings, and we must worship him. Our text tells the story of a few who would worship Jesus as the king. It places this group, who we often refer to as the Magi or the wise men, as from the east. And throughout the years, stories and legends have arisen to create quite a picture of these three kings from Orient are. And in many respects, there is little harm in establishing a number of three or ascribing names to these wise men. But all of that, I hope you know, is extra-biblical. We don't know there were three. In fact, it's quite likely there were more than three. We don't know that they were kings. In fact, it's, again, more probable that they were not. Uh, The word used here, magi, it's more closely translated perhaps as counselor or advisor, a, a wise man to a king. And when they would travel, especially on a long journey, especially if they were coming from a commission from their king, they would generally travel with a large retinue, which would likely include guards or soldiers, many supplies and support personnel. This could have been a very large entourage. We also know, as verse 10 tells us, that at this point in their arrival, Mary was in a house. So the beautiful manger scene with the king's giving gift to the infant in a manger are just that, a beautiful scene. And not necessarily grounded in fact, but I don't really mean to be a humbug on the great traditions and stories. I just want to remind us to differentiate between what the scriptures teach and what they don't. It seems to me that sometime, likely about a year after the birth, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem seeking, as verse 2 states, he who has been born, the king of the Jews. Herod, the king, hears of this group and their quest, and we see the first response. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The scholars point out that that news would have been troubling to Herod, for he had been appointed in 40 BC by Rome to be the king of that region over the Jews. And it had taken Herod uh, several years to consolidate his reign for Rome. And he was not above using whatever means he felt necessary to ensure that he and he alone would rule. He had put down several insurrections. He had even executed his own wife and three of his sons when he felt they were becoming too powerful. So imagine his dismay when he hears of a large group of travelers from a far land coming into the city asking about the birth of the new king of the Jews. Herod was threatened by that birth. And he feared that if it was true, this usurper would, at a minimum, uh, cause him some political trouble and some unrest and, more significantly, might even jeopardize Herod's own throne and standing with Rome. All of Jerusalem was troubled with him, and the next section in Matthew will show us why. They knew that Herod would do whatever he wanted to, whatever he felt he needed to do to eliminate all possible rivals. 
and many in Jerusalem were filled with anxiety. The birth of a rival king was not good news to many in Jerusalem who feared the oppressive response of a tyrant king. Those residents, one scholar suggests, because they lived in fear, made decisions with this question in mind. Quote, can this somehow lead to my harm? End quote. It's been noted that while this may be a sensible question, it's not how Christians ought to live. In fact, First uh, Peter 3, verse 14 instructs us clearly, do not fear what they, the world, fears. Do not fear. Do not be frightened. And fear does just that. It often blinds us to opportunities all around us, to truth, to situations that would set us free. You can see this in so many areas. People trapped in all sorts of situations. The fear keeps them in that bondage. Fear at times also preoccupies us with ourselves. Our fear of disappointment, our fear of failure, our fear of financial setback or collapse, all of these fears can cloud our vision in which we forget that we are called to live for the glory of our Savior King. These fears turn our thoughts inward to self-preservation instead of outward to living obediently for the glory and to the praise of King Jesus. And yet, if we remember that Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection changed everything, we, in his power, can learn to live without fear. We can remember that Jesus often starts, that God often starts his conversation throughout scriptures with a reminder, do not fear. And with his strength, we need not fear. Herod responds with more than just fear. He calls together some of his magi, some of his wise men, in this case, experts in Jewish law and custom. Verse 4 tells us that he assembled all the chief priests and scribes, and he inquired of them, where is the Christ to be born? And this assembled group of experts They're given a privileged opportunity to advise the king, and that must have felt great to them. When he questions them as to where the Christ is to be born, the religious experts know the answer. They're able to correctly answer King Herod. It's in Bethlehem of Judea. And furthermore, it seems like they wanted a little extra credit. They even cite a portion of prophecy for them, Micah 5.2. These religious leaders also state to give authority to their declaration, for so it was written by the prophet. I want you to think for a moment about what is happening here. We have chief priests. We have scribes who publicly profess to follow the law and the writings. They are familiar with the prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. They are admitting that the prophets have declared that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And now their king, their political king, has just asked them a question about the birth of Messiah. I'm guessing they are aware of the large retinue asking questions. And they rightly answer those questions. And then what? And then what? What happens next? What do these priests 
What do these chief priests and scribes do? It seems they do nothing. They knew it all and did nothing. This is a danger in all ages to simply sit by. New Testament scholar Dan Doriani remarks, if we know the truth, we must act on it. Very often, religious people, those brought up in religion, those taught religion as a body of knowledge to be gained, simply see little need in responding personally to those religious claims. They know all about that. And so they regularly see no need to personally repent and respond. Maybe we see some of ourselves there as well. Knowledge that doesn't work itself out in appropriate ways in our lives, that knowledge simply puffs up. We can become arrogant and proud. We can see ourselves as above all these things. We don't need to attend or bother attending the birth of Messiah. We know all about that. We've read the prophecies. We don't need to actually worship the king. We've got a whole system of worship worked out. We already know all about those things. And apathy, a proud apathy sets in. And at least in the case of these priests and scribes, it unfortunately doesn't stay there. Their knowledge, their initial apathy turns uh, into a determination not to acknowledge Jesus as king, but as New Testament scholar Matthew Green remarks, their apathy hardens into outright opposition to Jesus as his ministry developed and ended, he says, with a frenzied lust for blood. He remarks, an awesome warning that knowledge is no substitute for obedience, end quote. Truly, A refusal to believe or to be moved by belief results in the hardening of one's heart. One can clearly see that demonstrated in the pride of Pharaoh as the Lord was preparing to deliver his people from bondage in Egypt, which was a picture of the real deliverance that Christ was bringing even now. And here we see it in the religious leaders. They claim to know the truth without allowing that truth to soften their lives without letting a life-changing truth of the coming Messiah to actually impact them. They claimed they were looking for him. They claimed they were awaiting his fulfillment. But apparently, they weren't even interested in the short trip to Bethlehem to see this thing which happened there. Armed with the location, Herod reconvenes with his wise men and he trades information. He gives the location in order to gain the timing of the birth. And we, when we read the text, we're also given the location. It's Bethlehem, but you'll notice we've never been told the time in which the star appeared. Calvin thinks that it may have been at his birth, that the star originally appeared in anticipation of the birth. And so he would suggest that the Magi were there at the birth. But a majority of other scholars, uh, for reasons I've already mentioned, would place the visit roughly a year or so afterwards. In any case, the wise men have seen a star. They've prepared for a long journey. And they've traveled for months to celebrate and revere this child born king of the Jews. 
They were awakened to this quest by seeing a star when they were still in the east. And they were determined to greet this new king. The language that the wise men use in describing the star is they saw it when it rose. And that has caused all sorts of discussion and debate regarding this star. Was it a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation Pisces? Some think so. Was it a triple conjunction involving both Regulus and Jupiter in the Leo constellation? Others argue for that. Or maybe it was in the Aries constellation. There's interesting historical uh, evidence which might suggest a conjunction like that occurred in those years in which Christ was born. Was it simply a divinely appointed star-like light that God specifically used to lead wise men first to Jerusalem and then confirm their final journey to Bethlehem? I certainly can't say with confidence what it was that the wise men saw as, star, as the star that led them to Jerusalem, that went before them into Bethlehem, that rested over the place where the child Jesus was. But I can with confidence tell you that God got the attention of the wise men using something familiar and interesting to them. It's been noted by some that the wise men were likely pagans seeking a pagan king. And yet they searched out the stars. And God spoke to them using that star language, if you will. Why would God do that? Doriani answers, because that's what God does. And he continues, quote, Christianity is not a religion for good people. It is for sinners who listen to God's call, end quote. God speaks our language, whatever that language is. And the wise men listened. And more than listened, they journeyed. And in their journey, they represent the truth that this salvation which Jesus was bringing would be a good news of a great joy for all peoples, for all nations. A Calvin calls the Magi the first fruits of the Gentiles. Matthew Green remarks that what we will soon see of the Gentiles flocking to Jesus during his ministry begins with the Magi. He remarks, quote, and it has continued like a swelling river to this day, end quote. Christ's coming changed everything. He came not just to save the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to provide a way of salvation to all who would hear and respond to God's calling. God's been speaking to him and leading and preparing things all along, and the wise men did respond. They came and they worshiped Jesus. Calvin remarks that these magi, they were expecting to see born royalty, and they were likely to find Jesus, quote, in a more despised condition than any peasant child. And so he remarks that they were, quote, convinced that he is divinely appointed to be a king, holding it for certain that he will one day be different than what he now appears, end quote. They, the wise men, may have been surprised to see Jesus in such poor conditions, but that didn't change their response. We might be surprised 
in certain conditions we find ourselves in, but that doesn't change God's word. And they, in accordance with their customs, brought gifts fit for royalty, gold, which is always represented value, along with frankincense, a rare spice made from tree gum, myrrh, another rare and expensive aromatic gum and spice. These these have were given and much has been written on how fitting they were for Jesus as the king. Gold and frankincense, Isaiah 60 verse 6 tells us their gifts fit for a king. Myrrh is a spice associated with both his crucifixion and his burial. And these gifts were fit for Jesus. And it's quite probable that the gift at that time was what financed Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus' hasty flight into Egypt. Even though the circumstances may have surprised these wise men, they did not dissuade them from their intended purpose to worship and honor the newborn king. We have no record of them wavering. Instead, what we see is their preparation, their journey. We see them rejoicing exceedingly with great joy at seeing the star again over Bethlehem. We see them in their worship as they offer their best gifts. And lastly, we see them continuing to listen to the Lord's calling as God warns them not to return to Herod. God had been speaking to them had been leading and guiding them and drawing them to himself through this entire narrative. Jesus' birth had truly changed everything. For Herod, in his fear of being displaced, for some of the citizens in their anxiety, for the priest and scribe in their religious pride and complacently, and finally in the wise men who responded to God's voice, the calling from a star guiding their paths, protecting even their intention to honor and worship and not bring death to this new king, to bring the best they had for Jesus' benefit and blessing. And because Jesus really is the king, we must worship him. We must respond to his calling, give him a life of our best gifts, trust him even when the circumstances seems strange to us. Our celebration of Christmas, our celebration of God's incarnation in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who would live and then willingly die to save us, really does change everything. Let us pray. Father, the life and death and resurrection of your son only changes everything when you apply it into our lives, when you change us so that we can hear and so that we can respond. And we rejoice that you are committed to that work of drawing us, of getting our attention like you did the wise men, of leading us to yourself like you did. And Father, we ask that you might give us confidence with that reality that we would trust in your working. Even as we pray for those among us who know you not, our friends and family, our neighbors, our co-workers, perhaps some of us even seated here, that you would faithfully draw them, that you would use us to speak 
a language of interest to them. You might give us words to speak into their needs, that you would be gracious with them and with us, that one day they too would worship you. Father, we pray this for our unbelieving friends and family members, and we pray it for ourselves, that you would continue to change us into the image and for the glory of your Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, he truly is the King of kings. Guide us, lead us, and shape us that we might live life with that reality expressed through our lives for your glory. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.